All right, everyone. Well, we have taken a break from playing Elden Ring to talk about <laughs> Elden Ring. <laughs> they so, had to tear us away, <laughs> kicking and screaming. Yes, myself uh, included. I've been absolutely glued to it. It's the first time in recent memory where I've platinumed a game and I've played it for even longer after that. So I think at this point you've played it for longer after having platinumed yeah, it than the time it took to platinum it. <laughs> I think that's what I was trying to say, but my brain didn't catch up with my mouth. So. That's because you've been too busy playing Elden Ring. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of, so Aaron, you wrote a, a great article on Elden Ring, which looks at kind of our relationship to the Avatar, as is a really good thing that pops up often on With a Terrible Fate, but also just sort of making sense of Elden Ring, because it's massive, right? So I think that one of the one of the many cool things about this article that you've written is that you kind of get at the heart of a very particular problem that you were looking to address. And my question for you, first and foremost, with a game as big as Elden Ring, with as much lore and as much stuff in it, how did you start this? It's a great question. <laughs> Impossibly. Yeah, yeah. That's the answer. Impossibly was how I started this. No, I think... Like, what, uh, was the, what was the question in your mind that said, I need to put pen to paper on this? It is always questions or particular inklings yeah. that get me started on things like this. And then with my particular analytic approach, as you know, um, because I try to develop views of fictions that are comprehensive in the sense of being something that is coherent, uh, not just in a local way in terms of answering a question, but actually helping us to understand the overall fiction uh, in an interesting and illuminating way, mm. right? Uh, I end up oftentimes having to expand those specific questions out into things that are broader <laughs> in yeah. scope, uh, not unlike Elden Ring, right? But I, th I think the way in that I had to this was really just the endings. Um, mm. I, I oftentimes end, no pun intended, uh, my articles by arriving at the place that drew my interest to the topic in the first place. Uh, and and the rest is really just groundwork in order to yeah. understand what was puzzling me in the first place, right? So for me, as someone who has played all the Dark Souls games, has played Bloodborne, Sekiro, Demon Souls, loves Miyazaki's work, has talked about it ad nauseum with you and probably more people than care to listen. Um, the plurality of endings in this particular game was so interesting to me, especially in conjunction with the uh, much more open world than yeah. you've seen in Miyazaki's previous works, right? Because you have six endings going on it's not the first time that his games have had a multitude of endings but these felt very different very different very um seemingly unrelated right? right you have some things that have to do with the immediate quest of becoming an elden lord you have hidden marriage plots you have apocalypse and it, it just felt to me based on my relationship with Miyazaki to date, that there had to be something unifying these that I was missing. And so the kind of puzzle that I, I was trying to figure out was what is this game such that this range of options of how to end it is logical and coherent and singular? Yeah. Well, I know a lot of the time, the question that we ask with these games, when we, when we get at an analysis, and I know you do this, is a good place to start is like, what is this game capital A about? Right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, what you just described was it wasn't easy to do that with this one. And usually, I mean, usually there's some challenge to kind of put the thematic analysis together. But the thing about this game is 
because it was an open world mm -hmm. and so different from the previous Souls games, yeah. and yet it had the similarity of having multiple endings, there's something where you're like, I, that, I gotta look at that. Why is <laughs> why, why does this feel, yeah. why does this still work where the other FromSoft games work, right? Even though the gameplay and the setup of this game is so radically different from all the other ones. That's right. I think that challenge of figuring out the capital A about of video game stories is only going to become more pressing as more games feel like they need to emulate the environments of things like Breath of the Wild right. uh, and now Elden Ring, mm. right? Because when you have worlds that are designed in such a way as to empower the player and avatar to do whatever they want, it becomes harder than it is with a storyline that's very obviously on rails to analyze all the events and the sequencing of events to get thematic meaning out of that, yeah. right? Um, and especially when you have something like Miyazaki, I mean, this is why, and I mentioned this in a very angry footnote in this article, right? <laughs> like these exact kinds of questions that we're dwelling <clears throat> on now, to me are some of the most interesting ones you can ask about video games as an art form, especially as they continue to evolve. But when you just talk about something literally as a Soulsborne game, which yeah. so many people do now, or even use as a way of introducing Elden Ring, like that's useful shorthand, but if that's as far as you go, it becomes meaningless to ask questions like, okay, how is this game like a Dark Souls? Or what might it be taking from Bloodborne to complicate the experience of Dark Souls? Because really, one of the things that was most gratifying to me and helped me to understand this very puzzling thing was by going through a taxonomy of which parts of it it was borrowing from which of Miyazaki's other works and yeah. to what ends, which you do with any creator, right? But for whatever reason, especially when someone like Miyazaki reaches acclaim in the video game world, you just want to create a single term rather than thinking about those works as individual artworks unto themselves. Yeah. Well, I think the, the risk that you run to when you, when you just say souls born and you're looking at that to try to get the understanding of the new one is that you really pigeonhole yourself if it's very different mm -hmm. because then you, you have this kind of value judgment on the new thing because it's not like the old things when that may be the very point. Right. Yeah. So, and he's done that with every game. So, <laughs> <laughs> It's tough to, we're not big fans of the Soulsborne Ekiro, Soulsborne Eki Ring, whatever they're calling <laughs> it now. But I think one of the things that I know you is part of your process, but I think would be useful for people to hear is that it's no secret, you're very preoccupied with avatars, yep. right? And you say very early on in this article that avatars play a really big role in Elden Ring. Mm -hmm. And I think that may have been, as you were laying the groundwork for understanding the endings, it seems like that was, as it usually is for you, a really good place for you to start thinking, right? That's true. Um, <clears throat> especially, I, I talk in maybe the second quarter of this article about the uh, greater will and the two fingers. And I think, well, that wasn't the start of the puzzle for me. The moment when I was going through this game and first saw this seemingly inexplicable godlike figure represented by literally two fingers that was controlling and guiding the agents in this world, that was probably the moment when I said to myself, oh, okay, Miyazaki isn't going to let me down. He's going to have some really <laughs> interesting things yeah. to talk and think about, right? Yeah, because yeah. to me, that was a very natural signifier of uh, inviting the player into this world, right? Like I talk about in the article. And I think one nuance that is lost in the modern age of very meta-oriented storytelling is this idea of how 
the player can be brought into stories in ways that are not very fourth wall breaking, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. as as you know, most of my work is thinking about different relationships in which players can stand to the world of video games and how those are complementary to the avatars of those games yeah. rather than just saying that the player is playing the role of the avatar, right? And I, I cite some examples in the article for those who are interested, but... You kind of disambiguate it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and disambiguate different forms of interactivity and things like this. But, but I think the really cool opportunity that is lost when we just think about players role in video games as something that can be referenced and called out like you get in an undertale which is a great game but very explicit in it yes yeah yeah is the subtler storytelling opportunity to just tell a story where it's shown that the player is a part of that world and invited to interact with it in special ways without some narrative voice literally calling out the player in a way that um, challenges the continuity or consistency of that world, right? And I think Elden Ring is a great way of doing that. And I think it's not, I I don't think it's highfalutin to say, like, it's it's a more sophisticated way to get that idea across because... Deadpool does that, right? Deadpool like says, "Hey, I am a comic book character," but he's also a comedic character, and it's not like he's ruminating on the nature of media <laughs> most of the time. Well, it's more literary, right? Yeah. And uh, you you can call it more sophisticated, and and in terms of being just more complex, that's probably true. But this is one of the weird things to me about the way that people think about video games, especially those who aren't familiar with it. So non-gamers, right? Mm -hmm. And I think as gamers continue to repopulate the world, um, (laughs) it's going to become uh, more common to associate gaming with just any other art form, right? But I think about what we're talking about now in terms of audience involvement as constitutive of the artwork as something that is taken for granted in other artworks without the need to break the fourth wall, right? Like think about... Uh, like a visual artwork like you'd see in a museum, Mm -hmm. right? Part of how, you know, you might be taught to quote unquote read a painting in like an intro art class or art history or whatever is by thinking about the idea that not only is there what is literally being represented on the canvas or through the sculpture or whatever, Mm -hmm. but also that part of the artwork includes whatever relationship it is creating for you to stand into it. Right. And I think we're starting to get there in video games. And I think a lot of this focus on the meta is a useful tool for getting us to think about it and to advance the culture to that point. But when it's so obvious to so many gamers that video games are just as artistic and meaningful as all those other literary and artistic forms, I think it's just a bummer that we still have this catching up to do. But things like Elden Ring are helping to do that. Yeah, and I think I think maybe, you know, a necessary step to where it's like uh like you used Undertale as an example, which again, like very, very good game. And I think that it's very clear in what it's telling the player. And I think yeah. you, you, it calls out that you are playing a video game like multiple times. Right. But I think that what is, is good about that is that that seems to be like a stepping stone to get to things like Elden Ring, where I think players, obviously as, as someone looking at a sculpture, they intuit that they are part of it. Right. And yet, they probably don't analyze that in a meaningful way unless it's called out to them. At which point, maybe they start thinking about it as they start looking at other sculptures. I think ditto with video games, where Elden Ring is kind of the next step where it's like, okay, if you're coming with the understanding that this is happening as part of this medium, here's a lot of juicy stuff you can get from Elden Ring because Mm. it's not as straightforward as an undertale yeah. but there's still a lot to pick apart like you mentioned the the two fingers and 
all of the the different kind of imagery of control and influence yeah. or you know um, different entities having avatars like you mentioned that the Erd tree the lesser Erd trees have the avatars protecting them right so there's in-game reference to what you are doing when you engage with a game without saying hey you are a player playing a video game and I think you're exactly right that in that way it leans on the fact that um, unlike what some people would claim who are not familiar with video games and have claimed and I've responded to before, video games are an art form that have a history, right? Mm. And a canon uh, that people can be familiar with. Right? right. I think Elden Ring is the kind of game that rewards the kind of player who is antecedently familiar with gaming as an art form and with Miyazaki's work. Right? Yes. Because you're right. If you were just from Jump Street sitting down and playing Elden Ring as your first video game or something, <laughs> a lot of these things would not be as intuitive as I suggest they are in this article, right? But if you have a familiarity with the way in which Miyazaki tells stories or if you have these other examples like an Undertale, right? All of the signposting that this is a world that is populated by equivalents to avatars and players, gods controlling the the god form of avatar, like the original meaning of avatar before video games co-opted it, right. right? It invites you to think about your own relationship to that world in a certain way uh, without needing to be as fourth wall breaking as those other games with which you're already familiar. So it builds on those that history like any great art form does in order to do something novel. Yeah, and I think it does, I mean, a lot of really interesting stuff a lot of which you touch on so you you the the title of the article is your argument that you are an outer god in Elden right. Ring, right you yep. the, the player become an elder uh, an outer god so how did you <laughs> were you gonna say elder god because i, was, I, I yeah. can't tell you how yeah. many times i almost wrote that <laughs> yeah. while i was putting yeah, this well, together is, there's a lot of old things in this game yeah but yeah. um i think that the cool thing about that is that it was one of those moments that you read that title and if you are familiar enough with Elden Ring I think you kind of get that right like there's there is a feeling that okay similar to what we were just describing with all the stuff that Elden Ring um, uh, addresses that you are maybe naturally intuiting coming into it mm -hmm. I think that there is some natural inkling that players have going into Elden Ring that like yeah I do feel kind of connected in some weird way to these other people that are being described in yeah. this world right yeah it should feel familiar yeah right uh and just as an interesting tidbit of the creative process i mean th this is something that often happens for me with these larger works like i did not have that thesis in mind going in mm. right i had the puzzle in mind that we were talking about before in terms of how do i adjudicate these different endings yeah right uh and i had a sense that something was happening in terms of elevating the onus of storytelling to the player, right? And saying you have the ability to figure out what is meaningful in the story, which if you've read the article knows factors into the conclusion, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That's part of the argument. But it took working through all of this and seeing the different pieces and exactly how Elden Ring invites and involves its player in the world to reach this conclusion that the player actually occupies the role of an outer god, right? But it's yeah. useful, and this is part of what I think is cool about this game in the broader context of Miyazaki's oeuvre, right? Because games like Dark Souls are really renowned for having lore that is difficult to unearth and can be really rewarding, right? And and as I go through in this article, I think 
the lore in Elden Ring is used in a way that it wasn't really used for before in Dark Souls or Bloodborne or games like that as much. Namely, it's used to ground the relationship uh, in which the player stands to that world, right? You have language for what that relationship is. It's not just that you're some kind of external power imposed on the world. You're an outer god, and there are others. And so that means you can actually look to the story and to those other gods in order to better understand your own role and what the game expects of you. And that's really cool. And the fact that it, it does it without ever directly referencing the player is all the cooler. Well, and I think it makes it makes the argument that the ending, it, it, it's up to your interpretation. Because if you're coming at it from that perspective, that you are the outer god that are similar to these other outer gods that have avatars like, you know, um, like characters like Moog or uh, the different kind of demigods that are present in Elden Ring, they all have agendas, right? Yep. So the ending, I think... I think you would argue, and I think you did, that the, the endings kind of give you the agenda that they were working with, right? It's something where you can kind of put meaning to your experience at the end of it. Yeah, this is something I mentioned actually in terms of um, the argument to the conclusion that the player should be interpreted as an outer god, yeah. right? The idea that these outer gods not only have agendas, but also have kind of... Um, representative powers and unique influences on the world right? right scarlet rot exists in the lands between because there's this outer god of scarlet rot who's been imprisoned beneath this lake and that's the god that's influencing for instance melania right who's who's afflicted with scarlet rot and etc yep. etc et right uh and once you have that paradigm of the outer god, it's easy to apply that to the player too right and think like well in this world where there are all of these very specific rules around death why is it that this particular tarnished is able to continually revive at sites of grace in a way that doesn't seem available to anyone else in the world mm -hmm. well maybe that's because it's part of the characteristic influence of the specific outer god namely the player who has this particular role of coming to understand the world and determining a new order for it yeah. um, by guiding their avatar through it and, and reaching a particular conclusion. As you say, once you have that as the basis, then the conclusions are no longer just the conclusions to the story, but also a mechanism for the player, this outer god, to decide and name what is valuable in the world and in its story. It's so cool because in in prior From Software games, the the different endings i think especially like in sekiro for example yeah. the different endings kind of give you like different different aspects of the theme that the game is looking at mm -hmm. where it kind of says okay well if we're looking at um just to go really easy like in dark souls right in the first dark souls game if you're looking at the idea of of purpose and what it means to kind of live in a world that has life in it mm -hmm. the decision to either link the flame or not that both of those endings really kind of show okay here are the two sides of this coin yeah. that the game is trying to explain elden ring comes in and says um yeah we're kind of doing that but it's also like it, these are here to explain your journey also mm -hmm. which i think is is such a different thing and i th i would maybe guess is why you were fixated on the endings particularly because they were so different from the previous games right they're so different, and the thing that first drew me to them, very similar to what you were just saying, was the idea that I didn't feel as though this game was a huge departure for Miyazaki. Mm. It felt 
consistent with his overall corpus of work. And yet, I walked away after having seen all those endings uh, and played all those endings, feeling really empowered. Yeah. In a way that is not consistent with Dark Souls or Bloodborne or Sekiro. Usually very dejected when you walk away from You feel dejected. There's definitely an undertone of empowerment. But Mm. in those previous games, like you're talking about um, with something like Dark Souls. Dark Souls, especially the first one, is a great example of this. Because you have the two sides of the coin of this world. But the coin is this endless cycle that you can't get away from. right? And so the empowerment comes from looking at someone like Gwen... And saying, okay, as the player who's struggled through this endless cycle and so many deaths and so much uh, lack of empowerment in the world, how can I find a way to make meaning out of it? Right. right? So there's this backdrop of almost disenfranchisement and then a challenge for you to bring your own meaning to the table. So they're empowering, but after a fashion. Right. Right. Whereas with Elden Ring, it seemed like the conclusions were a direct mode of empowerment. And I think that comes, as you're saying, right, from the overall storytelling being a mode of not only making meaning out of the player's journey, but also through the choice-based and interactive nature of video games, allowing the player to choose whichever meaning they wanted to make out of their journey. And it was the marriage of that that made this possible. Yeah, it's it's so... I think, I think form reflects function in such a cool way because as you were saying that i was thinking like dark souls one you know you you have this feeling where you kind of you change yourself to fit the world because you you realize okay this is this is how this world works right and so i'm going to make purpose in this world but you still have to play by its rules Mm -hmm. whereas in elden ring and I, I would say too that through line kind of follows through a lot of these games. Yeah, is that you're just sort of beholden to the the rules, and that there's sometimes the only time where you can really change something is if you walk away. Right. <laughs> really, yeah. And I yeah. think that in Elden Ring, most of the endings I think give you this kind of feeling of there will be an after to this, mm-hmm. and it will be meaningful. And I may not be a part of it, the player. I may not be a part of it, but that doesn't make me feel bad. It actually feels pretty optimistic that everything that I've done leading up to this ending in particular seems to have consequences for uh, people who are not me after I leave. Yeah, and this is a great case of what we've been talking about in terms of the game following naturally from Miyazaki's other works, but also being something different because Rules of the World still looms large in Elden Ring, just as it did in the earlier works, but it does so in almost an inverse way than it did in the previous games, right? Because in something like Lordren or the Hunter's Dream and the Waking Nightmare that that is, right? Or even in Sekiro, you enter a world with fixed rules and you can't really change those. You just have to, as you said, accommodate them or walk away. Right. Right. In contrast, one of the arguments that I make in this piece, which I don't think is obvious from playing the game, but the... Uh, the the sense of being puzzled by this should be obvious to every player, right? You've entered a world where the rules are incoherent. The world is not in balance when you enter it. Right. And that's because the world has been ruled by this golden order that is logically inconsistent, right? And if you go through the work to understand what this order is, the order that you're supposedly expected to restore uh, by guiding the tarnished through this game right 
you discover that it's an order that is governed by these two principles of regression and causality, right? Which Mm -hmm. basically pull against each other in terms of wanting to treat everything as a single unity, but also understanding that things are different and related to each other, right? And you get that sense of puzzlement as a player through like story and lore level stuff, such as needing to treat Merica and Radagon as one single entity and also different entities uh, simultaneously, which you can't do in normal logic or how we think about the world, but also in terms of just what it is that the greater will wants as it tries to guide you to this conclusion. Like the more you think about it and pick it apart as I do in this analysis, right? The more you realize this particular kind of irrationality is very much in line with what it normally is to play a video game, right? Because you want the world to be internally coherent. You want it to be something with its own rules that is complete unto itself. That's part of what makes it a satisfying thing to explore. But also you, the player who is sitting outside of that game, want to be able to impact it, right? You're trying to treat it as something that is a unity and also in a causal relationship to something outside of it, just like the greater will is trying to do with this golden order. Right. right? So Miyazaki has created this. It causes a ton of conflict and just, uh, I mean, to use an Elden Ring term, fracturing, right? So much fracturing, so much conflict and a world that has rules, but rules that can never be in balance because they're not logical. Right. And so the role of you as the player is antithetical to what it was in a Dark Souls or a Bloodborne because instead of discovering the rules of the world and accommodating it and choosing what your avatar will do within those parameters, you are instead tasked with, despite being a very similar entity to the greater will, figuring out how to resolve its imbalance by imposing new rules on the world, right? And that is, I think, probably the most succinct way possible to describe what I ultimately think unifies the endings, right? The fact that they're all distinct choices of new rules to apply that will actually bring the world into one kind of balance or another and away from the golden order. And you can see the really important part to me, because I think think that's it, right? That's the, the key to understanding Elden Ring at the end. The key thing to me is that it, it definitely feels like compared to Dark Souls 1, 2, 3, Bloodborne, um, even Sekiro, that there will be something that happens afterwards. Yes. And I suppose if you want to... Here's the, here's the beautiful thing about Elden Ring. If you want to be cynical, you could make the argument that, well, it'll just go the way of the Golden Order, right? Mm-hmm. How is what you're doing any different from what happened with Radigan and Merica and the Golden Order and how that fractured and created all this strife in Elden Ring, right? And I think that's fair, and I suppose if you wanted to do that, you could. But I think another thing that you hit on in the article is that Elden Ring doesn't seem to think that way. Like, it seems much more optimistic that this influence that you have over the Avatar and therefore the world is a good thing. And that it's going to lead, even in like the... um, the the fia ending or yeah. you know like the dung eater ending like yeah. even those feel like you own them in a way that well we're going to try this now and yeah. we'll see what happens it's not just linking the fire again there's this saying i love that life is all about how you leave a room <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've heard this <laughs> yep um i think what you're saying and what I think about in this article really speaks to that in Elden Ring, where if you agree with me or see the problem of this paradox that the greater will is throwing the world into imbalance by wanting it to be something intrinsically coherent, yet still involving itself from the outside, 
then the way for a player who's in a similar position of influencing the world from the outside to do something that is not similarly irrational uh, and that won't go the way of the golden order, as you say, mm. is to extricate herself from yeah, the yeah. world at the end of it, right? So that that agency is not a persistent challenge to the world's internal logic, right? And I think that's it's really cool to it, think about. It's yeah. really cool and it's clever in terms of everything about like the metaphysics of the world and how the story is put together, like uh, like we've been talking about, but also just on the level of how we think about video games in general, right? Yeah. I mean, you and I have been having related conversations about this uh, over the last while. Like, There's this really interesting and intuitive question of what happens after a player leaves yeah. the world of a video game. What happens to the characters? What yeah. happens to the world? Yeah. If you go through this whole heroic journey with Link to save Hyrule, right, how is Link supposed to be? in a world that goes on where he doesn't have that same heroic guide throughout, you know, his life. Yeah. It's, it's kind of formally similar to what we see played out thematically really in something like Majora's mask after Navi his similarly empowering guide has left him. Right. Right. And I think we, we don't, we don't often focus on that because we're so rightly wrapped up in how cool it is that games are an interactive storytelling medium. And so we think a lot about how the player's involvement influences the story. But also that involvement, I think, has interesting implications for once the fiction continues no longer having that involvement. Yeah. And Elden Ring is a great way of meditating on that. Well, I think, you know, I, there's there's enough difference that I wouldn't say that it's one-to-one, -one, but I mean, it is very Pirandello, you know, the mm. idea of, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. characters exist without us and what happens yeah. when we leave. And Elden Ring, so to, to reference my own work, right, like I, ha I, I would say that the negative or cynical way of looking at things is that in my Xemnas article, I talk about how when we leave the world, like what are we really doing to these people, you yeah. know, because they don't exist without our connection to them. And so when we take that away, shouldn't we kind of feel bad about that? Yeah. Elden Ring comes in and says, no, it's an opportunity for them to be on their own. And your, yeah. your tarnished will carry on the idea that you set out and it'll change and it'll grow. And maybe the golden order will happen again, but probably not. Cause you're not going to be there, yeah. you know, and yeah. that, that's such an uplifting that I think is the heart of the optimism is yeah. that, the natural way that a video game ends is actually good for the characters in it. <laughs> yes. Well, and and I think that spirit is is behind what motivated me to get <laughs> obsessed with this topic and idea in the first place. <laughs> because uh, my my first kind of ending path that I went down as a player, right, was the Lord of Frenzied Flame ending. Yeah. And that ending a priori has every reason in the world to be incredibly depressing uh, and leave you just bummed out as a player because it's an ending about raising the world to the ground. Like yeah. everything is engulfed in fire at the end of that. And yet as a player, even before I sat down and really thought about it, I didn't feel bummed out by it at all. It felt really cool and empowering and like I had done something really meaningful not just for the story but also for my avatar like they'd become something greater than the world yeah and so i wanted to understand especially given that elden ring is following most immediately in the footsteps of sekiro and sekiro has a very similar ending shura which is a super depressing ending yes. for wolf and the player yeah. like how is it that elden ring can pull off this trick of having a, an apocalyptic ending that feels so good for the player. Like you still did something right and meaningful. And yeah. I think everything we're talking about is the answer to that. 
especially just, uh, and th there's another question I want to ask you that I, this is a good segue into it because a big part of the lore yep. in Elden Ring is the Erd tree and this this massive looming tree. Mm -hmm. Be it's beautiful, mm -hmm. but I mm -hmm. think that it also represents the hege the hegemony of the Golden Order, mm. and so there's in a lot of different ways, right? But there's this idea that every ending of Elden Ring does end with the Erd Tree burning. Mm. But the Lord of Frenzied Flame ending, the Erd Tree is gone. And there's this kind of like beautiful in-game uh, thematic resolution to, all right, the past is past. And now yeah. even mm -hmm. the symbol that has lord, you know, lorded over everybody, you can't go anywhere in the world without mm -hmm. seeing the Erd Tree. It's gone. And now whatever happens, happens. Hegemony is the right word for it because especially given how ubiquitous the Erd Tree is in your experience of the game. Like you said, it's this massive world and you can always see the Erd Tree. Right? Yeah. You know, it's so easy to forget as a player that there is a history to this world that precedes the Erd Tree. Yes. Right? Yeah. Which is kind of the whole thesis of the, the Golden Order and the Age of the Erd Tree and the fact that you know, before it was anything like the order of the world, it was a religion and, and kind of more of a cult, yeah. right? And it had those attributes to it, right? So I, I think I hadn't thought about the Lord of Frenzied Flame ending through that lens, but I love that because you're right. It is, it's, it's the only ending in which you really can say you've put that chapter of the world to a close and now something truly different will evolve from it. You yeah. could kind of say that with Age of the Stars, but even then, it's not like you've closed the book to start a new chapter. You've just kind of left the Erd Tree and right. gone elsewhere, which feels different. And, and Rani has her own connections to the Golden Order. Anyway. For sure. And yeah, so, that's yeah, a great it, point. I think th that's why it was my first ending too, and I think I'm with you on, on it being one of the coolest ones. Um, for all the reasons you go into in the article. One of the things that I want to bring up, because you don't usually do this, and we don't usually do this on no. The Terrible Fate, no. but Elden Ring required a lot more deep lore analysis yeah. for you to kind of make <laughs> these arguments. And I just wanted to see, like, you don't usually do that. No. You usually, I would say, sort of selectively choose moments or characters mm -hmm. and explain as much as you need to to get the kind of narrative point across, right? Yeah. You needed to do more in Elden Ring. That's true. So what was that like? Uh, if I'm being honest Exhausting. with you and our <laughs> yeah, a migraine and a half. Yeah, uh, it was funny. No, I remember because, um, you know, a lot of it was research I, I was doing while you were here, and, and it, it was like every every few minutes I would look up at you and be like, oh, hey, I just figured <laughs> out like know? this about the Lord. Do you care about this? Am I down a <laughs> rabbit hole that's totally vacuous? Will you please help me destroy <laughs> is, my laptop? Is this useful? <laughs> oh, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, w w it, one of the things that I think is cool about this kind of analysis in general, the kind of analysis that we do on With a Terrible Fate, is it's just true in terms of how video game fictions are structured that you oftentimes don't need to look at lore in order to understand 
the player's relationship to the game and how that ties into themes. Yeah. Right? And you, I, you did a great job in your Returnal article where, like, you, you don't really go into the planet that you're on there. You just enough to, right. to you know, kind of go through your ideas. Well, because you're thinking about the symbolic content right. of everything in the story rather than the literal boots-on-the-ground content. And sometimes they touch, sometimes they don't, right? Uh, and and I, we can actually link in the description to this. I talk through in the beginning of my article on your automata kind of mm. the reasons why that's the case, right? Because there's basically, you can think about it in terms of two different levels of what's happening in the fiction. One is like the events that are happening and that's the stuff that people usually are talking about in terms of the lore, the history of the world. Right. And then the stuff that grounds those events, yes. right? The things in virtue of which it happens. Um, the characters. That can, yeah. yeah. It can, well, it can be, you know, metaphysical stuff. Like, you know, what is the nature of this universe which is kind of uh the returnal article is an example of that because yep. we're not thinking about events we're thinking about the kind of metaphysical nature of those events in the sense that like you can think of them not as things that are literally happening but as representations of a mind yeah right so you can think about that through the theoretical lens of like the, the lore details in terms of the events within the world can be worked out and adjudicated in different ways um, that explain things on the level of the world's history but don't necessarily impact what it is in virtue of which that's happening. Right, right? right. And the thematic level of a game or its symbolic content kind of also in many but not all cases belongs to that grounding level. Yeah. At least in the kind of work that we typically do. But you're right, Elden Ring... Can't it, do that really. No, <laughs> yeah. you, you can't. And it's interesting to understand why that's the case. And I, I gesture at this very briefly at the start of this article, but it it does this interesting and for the analyst maybe a little frustrating thing <laughs> of giving explanations within the history and events and lore of its world for specifically what these different metaphysical um, concepts amount to, right? So if you're thinking about the typical things that would belong to uh, like a grounding level of explanation, things like the the gods of the world and how it is that they bring it about or relate to it or the order of the world, right? Like uh, the unifying principles that allow things to happen in the first place. Like all of these things that you typically just have to infer or analyze yeah. based on the content of a fiction. Like we've already been talking about in this conversation, like there are specific answers to all of that within the lore of Elden Ring. Like we can't talk about things like the order that's unifying the world without understanding what the golden order is. And, and like we and said who's before, a part of it. Yeah, who's yeah. a part of it? What's the law of regression? What's the law of causality? And so in order to do the work of even understanding like the themes and symbolism of the game, you have to have a baseline understanding of its story. But I also think, while that might sound very frustrating and, and like I'm pulling my hair out uh, <laughs> doing it, I think the flip side of that, um, maybe just due to the nature of the story, maybe due to the influence of George R. R. Martin, mm. is that it's also relatively easier to unearth that lore content than it is in something like a Dark Souls. Yes, right? to the point where I would say that Dark Souls is, I would say for me, and I know a lot of people love doing the lore digging, and I, there's stuff in it that I find genuinely interesting, right? But I think that Dark Souls, to me, is more interesting as something I can vaguely gesture at in terms of its themes. Yeah. Whereas Elden Ring, I do feel more enriched when I know particular details mm -hmm. about people. Like that, um, speaking of the Lord of Frenzy Flame ending, yeah. the Shabriri character... Yeah. 
is so important to understand why that ending is so powerful and meaningful. And I think it does make it worthwhile to seek out more information about Shabriri and how the world was before the Erd Tree and the Golden Order and how this idea... You know, we've been talking about the Golden Order's look at things, but um, we haven't even touched on this idea that the reason there's so much kind of conflict and and everything is because things have been disambiguated. Right. And because of that, there is conflict, whereas yeah. in the formless void of creation, there was just, it was just that. That yeah. was it. And so to hear that from a character who seems to have been there at that time mm-hmm. is so cool. Yeah. And I think it deepens your understanding of what you're doing. Well, and, and characters that have been in places that are relevant to the lore and the theming and also characters that will connect that lore to the journey that you're making as you're in those places, yeah, right? Yeah. I think Elden Ring does a tremendous job of making you interested in the lore, but also just exposing you to the lore as you naturally go through the world. Like one of my favorite examples that I didn't even know about for a while uh, is... Uh, Melina, right? Your guide, the the maiden who will will join you or abandon you based on your choices, right? But as you're going through the world and you come across all of these different churches of America, right? When you sit down at the graces at those sites, uh, assuming that Melina is still with you, you'll have the opportunity to talk with her and she'll be able to channel the words of America that presumably America spoke in different contexts at those different places. Yeah. And so you can start to understand given that this world has a history and a complicated lore and it's been around for a while, okay, what are all these places that I'm seeing? Um, what do they have to do with each other? How can they teach me about things like the Golden Order and things that you know might have come and gone already but are, are, or on the other hand are still imposing their will upon this world? And so it's, it's not like... It's not like in a Dark Souls where you're sifting through item descriptions just to understand things about the world that are kind of incidental to you because you as the as the player controlling this avatar, like we said before, don't really have the capacity to influence things or change history. You're yeah. just going through the cycle and figuring out how to cope with it. Here, kind of because you have this different sort of agency to advance the world's history, it's like you also have a different lens or perspective or relationship with learning about the world as you go through it kind of like how that information actually will inform what you're doing whereas Mm -hmm. in in dark souls it's interesting but it's a lot of the time like archaeological historical work where you're just trying to piece things together and it has no bearing on what you're doing yeah yeah well and i talk about this in the article right because in order for this kind of storytelling to work where the story and the choices at the end make meaning out of the player's journey it's tremendously important that the game does a good job of setting up that it's important for the player to determine the meaning of the story and that that's something they can do. Right. Right? And I think Elden Ring does a tremendous job of that by basically showing you an example uh, in Gideon, the all-knowing, of someone who basically at the end is driven insane by the lack of ability to make meaning with the world yeah. uh, when he learns too much about the mission to overthrow the Golden Order. Uh, and through the mending rune endings, right, where you have the ability to empower different characters within the world to come to a new understanding of it and impose their own interpretation upon the world. So again, without ever explicitly telling you in a fourth wall breaking way, Elden Ring shows you 
look, this is not just the kind of game where you can archaeologically figure out what is happening. It's a game that demands, as part of the playing of it, to decide what is important and yeah. impose your own order on things. And I think that does put like a different onus upon the player. Like, if you have gotten to the endings and aren't making a choice based on what you value and what you think is right for the world, you've, you've kind of failed in a certain way. I think that's that's the big thing that I get out of this article and kind of the all of the talking we did around it. And I think something that we're going to be bringing up in our panel um, in this coming week is this idea that th- gamers have an idea with multiple ending uh, games with multiple endings, that there mm-hmm. is a true ending, right? right? That there is something that fits perfectly. And we've talked about this before, about how maybe there's like a true-to-you ending, right? Where you experience something first and you feel like that's the real thing. But in terms of like, I, it's very hard to imagine that Miyazaki and his board members are sitting around a big table and saying like, yes, you are meant to link the fire. <laughs> right? Like that, yeah. that, it just seems like if that was the case, that's how they would have ended the game, you yeah. know? And so what's so cool about Elden Ring and what you articulate in the article is that this we talked about all the optimism and the empowerment the endings of elden ring are very empowering to the player because more so than i think ever before you can say this ending is the one that i gave meaning to because Mm -hmm. it's the road that i took it's the influence i gave to the avatar and so this one while it may not be the quote capital t true ending this is the one that makes sense for my story i think that's tremendously important uh because I'm with you. It like true ending is one of those terms that typically just gives me a little aneurysm because I think, look, just if, if you're thinking about storytelling, like if something is an ending to a story, like even if it's a story that is told through multiple possibilities, all of those possibilities are part of the story. And yeah. each of those endings is constitutive of an ending to a plot line right. within a, a broader matrix of possible stories. Right. So I typically think, typically that that term is just incoherent um unless you're talking about the ending that was most meaningful to you but then i i oftentimes feel like people take themselves to be describing something different with it than just that. i agree right yeah. uh, but with elden ring it's amazing because it's like they've created the exactly right kind of fiction to give that term a meaning that other video games can't rightly claim namely mm. because elden ring puts its player in this special role of an outer God with the capacity to determine its story and the value that is imputed to that story. It is the case within the fiction that the player has the ability to choose the true ending. Yeah. They might choose a different ending every time. And in any given journey through the lands between a different ending might be that true ending, but you have an explanation within the fiction of why any ending can be empowered to be true and meaningful in a way unavailable to the others simply because the player chose it from their unique position of narrative standing. That's really cool. It is cool. And I think that From Software has always been ahead of the curve. And I feel like there's a reason that they're just kind of a genre unto themselves. Yeah. And this is so cool because even though, and, and maybe this is, this is where I can end it. Um, but maybe more so than any game I've ever played the idea that Aaron you and I could have reached the same ending and they are 
the quote true ending for both of us for very different reasons mm. is something that I don't think you get in other games. Um, I I haven't played a game that's felt that way. The closest I can think is maybe Silent Hill Two. We've talked about that. Yeah. Where the first ending you get, like for the first one I got, felt like the the one that made the most sense based mm-hmm. on what I did. But I think like that's a that's a pretty shared opinion with a game like that. Whereas yeah. you and I could explain vastly different Elden Ring experiences and still agree that the ending that we both got made the most sense for what we did throughout the entire story. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's just a testament to the fact that it's, it's creating a path where exploration in video games and storytelling don't have to intrinsically be at odds with each other. Yeah. Right. We can explore different things and feel different things about the story. And then even if we end at the same place, we can have told a complete story and feel different things about it. And our feelings can become part of that story. Uh, And that, that is not something that you usually get from games that focus on a story at all. Right. right? Um, So I think we're, we're just at the beginning of what will probably become a new language for those experiences. Uh, I don't say lightly that I feel like for these reasons, Elden Ring is going to be a landmark in video game storytelling, not just because it was really popular and Miyazaki and George R. R. Martin and blah, 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 but because it really thoughtfully put together a ton of disparate elements that leaned on very disparate aspects of from software's previous works and other games, of course, besides to empower players to have, not only uniquely meaningful experiences on their own terms, but also share those unique experiences with other players who have been through something that could be very different and yet is, is deeply similar and speaks enough of the same language to be able to be rightly shared with other players. Mm. Well, I think I'm one of the things I'm really excited about is hearing some of those shared experiences because we're going to be talking about, Uh, A lot of what Aaron wrote about in this article is going to be part of our presentation at PAX East, which is taking place on Thursday, April 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern. And we will be streamed, correct? Yep. So even if you're not in Boston, um, there will be an an opportunity for you to watch us talk about about Elden Ring. And if you are going to be in Boston, I know we would both like to hear about your ending and how the journey got you there and how probably radically different it was from both of ours so (laughs) absolutely yeah show up uh we always say this but it's true our favorite part of doing these panels at great places like pax is being able to talk to um like-minded gamers afterwards just hang out and chat about what makes the game so cool what makes our experiences different as players we always walk away with you know like 10 recommendations for new games we've never heard of (laughs) so it's it's just the best Uh, we love that and so really truly hope to see you at least virtually um but maybe even in person 